Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. From the small towns. To the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is. The Our American Stories Podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Today we bring you the story of America's oldest family-owned premium cigar company, J.C. Newman. Also, we bring you the story of what life was like before the FDA. And finally, we'll bring you a story from a busy mother of six who decided to befriend a retired cop. 
And we can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. They work hard day in, day out to give you the kind of content that reflects a good and decent country. And on our show, the country is the star. America's the star. And the American people are the star. And by the way, we are a nonprofit. So we're looking for your support. And any bit will help. Do a little, do a lot, do your part. Go to the giving tab at OurAmericanStories.com and make a donation. Join our team in the work we do and become a part of all that's going on here. We appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly gifts. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now Drew Newman brings us an amazing American Dreamers story of America's oldest family-owned premium cigar company, J.C. Newman. Here's Drew Newman, the great-grandson of the original founder of J.C. Newman Cigars. One of the things I really love about premium cigars is that they tend to bring people together. Today, we live in such a divisive world with people having very strong feelings about lots of issues, and our country is pretty divided. But cigars, it seems, are one of the few things that bring people together. It doesn't matter your age, your race, your gender, the language you're speaking, your income, your job, or anything. If you enjoy a cigar, we can sit down together and we're friends. And I've seen this play out time and time again that cigars bring people together across different divides. It's like a modern day peace pipe. You strike up a match or light a lighter and you light the cigar and it's lit. You can't speed up the process and in fact, a cigar slows you down. It forces you to take a break, to sit down, to think about life or whatever's on your mind, to sit down and ask your neighbor what's going on in his or her life and to, it allows you to form a connection with other people and it's a shared bonding experience that builds trust. Over generations, cigars have been used as gifts, part of diplomatic negotiations to end wars, to bring peace together. And it's a real privilege to be in this industry to continue this heritage. My name is Drew Newman, and I am the great-grandson of Julius Caesar Newman, who founded the J.C. Newman Cigar Company. Well, I think what makes us and our, our family and our company different is that we are a four-generation, 125-year-old family business. When my great-grandfather started our company in 1895, there were 42,000 licensed cigar manufacturers in the United States. And of those 42,000, we're still the only one owned and operated by the founding family that's still in business. My great-grandfather, Julius Caesar Newman, was born in a tiny village in 1875 in rural Austria-Hungary. And he wrote that he was born in a house that was made out of brick. And it was the only house made out of brick in their tiny village. And on the first floor of that house was the local general store and tavern and on the second floor is where my family lived, where he was born and where he, where he grew up. And everyone called it the Brick House. 
And apparently it was this beautiful rural setting and they had cows and goats and chickens. And, and, and my great grandfather grew up surrounded by nature. And when he came to America as an immigrant in 1888 and landed in Cleveland, Ohio in the middle of the industrial age, it was noisy and dirty and crowded. He really missed the pastoral setting of his childhood. So one of the earliest brands of cigars that he created was called Brick House. And he created it to reminisce and honor and remember the house that he grew up in in Austria-Hungary. And so if you open a box of Brick House cigars that we still sell today and take a look at the inside label, you'll see a house made out of brick. That was what my great-grandfather remembered about the house that he grew up in. Um, which was the only brick house, and it's surrounded by farm animals and in and, and this beautiful, lush uh, countryside because uh, my great-grandfather was homesick for the uh, old world, for the, the country he was born into. When my great-grandfather, Julius Newman, came to America in 1888, he uh, was 13 years old, and he didn't speak English. He... Uh, immigrated through the port of Baltimore, and he had to go through the immigration process, which included being interviewed by an immigrations officer. And he had his papers in his hand, and when he went up for the interview, the officer asked him, what's your middle name? You wrote here on your form, your name is Julius Newman, but there's a, a field for middle name, and it's blank. My great-grandfather couldn't respond because he couldn't speak English. So the immigration officer, perhaps out of amusement, decided, well, if your first name is Julius, I'm going to give you the middle name Caesar. So he wrote Caesar on the form, and from that day on, my great-grandfather was known as Julius Caesar Newman, which is why our company is called the J.C. Newman Cigar Company. But what makes that story even more interesting is that the immigration officer must not have been very well educated because he misspelled Caesar. Julius Caesar, the Roman emperor, is C-A-E-S-A-R, but my great-grandfather's middle name was C-A-E-S-E-R. So we have this cigar that I created a few years ago called Diamond Crown Julius Caesar that has my great-grandfather dressed up as a Roman on the cigar band. But if you look on the band, the Caesar is spelled C-A-E, S-E-R, and hardly a week goes by that someone doesn't call or email and says, hey, you misspelled Caesar. But the reality is Caesar is spelled correctly because that's how my great-grandfather's middle name was spelled on his immigration form when he came to America in 1888. My great-grandfather lived the American dream. He came to the United States with his family in 1888, not speaking English, not having any money, not really knowing how he wanted to spend his life, but he knew that coming to the United States, he would have the opportunity to build a life for himself and his family. So with his mother and his father and his brothers and sisters, they happened to settle in Cleveland, Ohio, where others from their part of Austria-Hungary happened to be. And my great-grandfather learned how to recognize the words help wanted in English, even though he didn't speak the language. And for reasons that we don't quite understand, he decided he wanted to become a cigar maker. 
And so he saw the signs help wanted in the window of a little cigar shop in Cleveland and he went in and my great great grandmother paid the cigar maker to teach her son, my great grandfather, how to become a cigar maker. And he started at the very bottom as an apprentice, sweeping the floors, getting coffee for the cigar workers, and learning the business from the ground up. And after a few years of this, he became a really good cigar maker. But there was a big recession in the United States in 1895, and people all over the country lost their jobs, including my great-grandfather. But by that time, he had a skill. He knew that he could use his two hands and roll tobacco into cigars and sell them and be able to provide for his family. So with the help of his mother, my great-great-grandmother, he got an order for 500 cigars from the grocery store around the corner where my family shops, and he borrowed $50 from other members of his family to buy some tobacco, to buy supplies and tools. He built a little table for himself in the barn behind the family house, and he rolled those first 500 cigars and started his own company. And from those first 500 cigars, from the, the very beginnings of our company, now 125 years and four generations later, my family and I are still working to continue the legacy of my great-grandfather and to keep our family's cigar-making tradition alive. Of our company's 125 years in business, at least 100 of those have been what we call challenge years. Years when business has been difficult, when we've had to struggle to survive and overcome challenges. The one that really jumps out in my mind is in 1961 when the Cuban embargo took effect. At that point, we were rolling cigars using almost entirely Cuban tobacco. In the 60s, Cuban tobacco was seen to be the best. It's what consumers wanted, it's what we knew, and it's what everyone else was using here in the cigar city of Tampa. And overnight, with a stroke of a pen, President Kennedy imposed the embargo that cut off our supply of tobacco, cut off the raw materials, threatened our entire business and the entire American cigar industry. And it was a huge challenge. Thankfully, we had a stockpile of Cuban tobacco that lasted about a year. So we had a little bit of time to figure out what to do, to test other tobaccos, to come up with a plan, and my grandfather was committed to making it work. My grandfather flew to France, where the French government auctioned off tobaccos grown in Cameroon and West Africa every year, and my grandfather realized that Cameroon tobacco has a taste that's, that's very similar to Cuban tobacco, and he decided to bring it to the United States and start rolling cigars with it. Using Cameroon tobacco, he was able to bring our company back from the brink of collapse and take it from a situation where we had a dwindling supply of raw materials to building the biggest premium cigar brand in the 1960s called the Questure Number no. 95 made with African Cameroon wrapper. But the Cuban embargo is just one example of the challenges that we've faced. In 
In 2016, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration decided to expand its regulatory authority over all tobacco products. And in doing so, they decided to treat every type of tobacco product like cigarettes. So whether it is a handcrafted premium cigar, a pipe, an e-cigarette, a, a, a cigarillo, any type of product that has tobacco in it, they're going to, the government decided to regulate it like cigarettes. It's been an enormous challenge for the premium cigar industry because we're not like cigarettes. We don't sell mass market products that are made on machine that are standardized and homogenized and use chemicals and flavors and so forth. We make a all natural product by hand in small batches. And so imposing this massive regulatory structure on our industry has been extraordinarily difficult for a couple reasons. The cost of implementing these regulations can easily be spread out across the cigarette industry because they make billions and billions of cigarettes each year. When we're making thousands of cigars per year, different types and in quantities, it's much harder to test all of them and, and to pay tens of thousands of dollars to test them, even though standards for testing cigars don't yet exist. That doesn't make sense, but that's kind of, that's the reflection of the, the situation right now. And so we're, we're stuck in this regulatory purgatory. FDA has said that they're not worried about premium cigars because their own data show that children don't smoke them and that our consumers enjoy premium cigars infrequently. However, we've been swept up into this regulatory mass and are subjected to the same requirements and restrictions as cigarettes. And so since 2016, we've been working to educate FDA, our leaders in Congress and in the White House about what a premium cigar is and what it's not and are working to ask the government just to recognize that premium cigars are different and to treat them differently. And so I've spent a lot of my time in Washington, D.C., just trying to educate folks about what our, our products are and how we make them and who enjoys them and how they're just different from every other type of tobacco product. And I'm hopeful that in the end, we will get some relief. But if we don't, it could be just catastrophic for our industry. Premium cigars are a tiny subset of the tobacco industry in the United States. Premium cigars make up approximately 1% of the overall cigar industry and 0.01% of the overall tobacco industry in America. We're just a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of family businesses trying to keep the tradition of handcrafted premium cigars in America alive. We began offering tours of our cigar factory for the first time. And one of the things that really surprised me was that most of our visitors don't smoke cigars. They don't even like cigars. But what they do like is history and tradition and families. 
And what our visitors see when they come to our 110-year-old cigar factory here in Tampa is a four-generation family business, a hand craft that hasn't changed in 100 years. They get to see how cigars are rolled in person and can roll them themselves. They get to learn about the history of Tampa, of the cigar industry, of my family. And so we're really excited to welcome visitors into our factory here in the cigar city of Tampa so they can see the American cigar making tradition in person and learn about it. So the cigar that we roll here in the United States by hand is called the American. The American is an old cigar brand that was first made in the 1880s in New York City. And when our El Rolo factory here in Tampa opened in 1910, it was the first brand of cigars made in this building when it opened. And so as we were creating this all-American handmade cigar a few years ago, we thought, what better name to give it than the American? which we roll here in our 110-year-old historic cigar factory in Tampa, Florida, using all American tobaccos. And not only is each leaf grown in the United States, but every part of the package is made in America as well. Everything from the wood and the wood boxes to the inks and the papers and the cigar bands, the cigar labels, to the hinges on the boxes, to the cellophane tubes, all of it from start to finish is made here in the United States. But doing so is at an added cost. Uh, Labor is more expensive, materials are more expensive, but we think it's worth it to keep the American cigar making tradition alive. And a special thanks to Joey for producing the piece and for conducting the interview. And a special thanks also to Drew Newman, who's the great-grandson of the founder of America's oldest family-owned premium cigar company, J.C. Newman. By the way, if you're ever in the Tampa area, be sure to visit the J.C. Newman Cigar Factory. It's a must-see if you're in the area. And that means if you're heading to Orlando, it's not that far. Or if you're hitting the Gulf Coast for some beach time, uh, head to the Tampa factory. It's a great attraction for the family. And as the great-grandson said, this was the American dream lived, what the great-grandfather did. And like so many family businesses, the next generation and the generation after it try to keep that American dream alive. By the way, if you love what you're listening to and the stories we bring you every week, we'd ask that you go ahead and give us a five-star rating and review us. Let us know what you like about the show. It really does help us on Apple and all of those other platforms you listen to us on. Up next, Darren Glassbrook of the Mobile, Alabama Medical Museum tells the story of patent medicine, which didn't do much except line the pockets of their creators. Snake oil, heroes, elixirs, patent medicine. Today we think of medicine as a pretty buttoned-up industry. Everything is tested. It just works. But that hasn't always been the case. Here's Darren Glassbrook, executive director of the Mobile Medical Museum, with more on these medicines that claim to do everything, but didn't do much except line the pockets of their creators with cold, hard cash. So we use the term patent medicine to refer to 
over-the-counter medicine that was sold in the years after the Civil War up until the establishment of the um, Food and Drug Administration in 1906 and the passage of new labeling laws and all of that. During this time, the drug industry was basically totally unregulated. And so uh, you didn't even have to be a practicing doctor. You could be anybody and develop this concoction, apply for a patent, and then sell it over the open market. Some of these medicines had some legitimate uses and, and, and others didn't. <laughs> the names of these medicines were as interesting as what they claimed to cure. Bonor's electromagnetic bathing fluid claimed to cure cholera, epilepsy, scarlet fever, neurosis, paralysis, hip diseases, and female complaints, among other things, while Solar Teacher claimed to restore life in the event of sudden death. But the most popular patent medicine of all time came from the swamps of the American South. An interesting one that came kind of late in the game is called Hadacol, and it was a patent medicine that was invented in 1943 by uh, Dudley LeBlanc, who was a state senator in Louisiana and a two-time candidate for governor. And he had no medical or pharmaceutical training, of course. The name Hadacol um, was a, an acronym for the Happy Day Company of LeBlanc. So um, that's what the, where the name comes from. He, you know, this became one of the, you know, most, uh, popular patent medicines of all time. In fact, uh, by the year 1951, it was the second largest advertiser in the U.S. after Coca-Cola. So uh, LeBlanc gave lots of interviews about the origins of this uh, medicine. But what he claimed is that he, uh, he went to the doctor for some foot pain and <laughs> he was given this uh, medicine by a nurse and he basically claimed to have stolen the recipe for Hadacol from this doctor's office. But the, the ingredients were just, you know, various B vitamins, minerals, honey, 12% alcohol. That was like the real, you know, most impactful ingredient. And uh, diluted hydrochloric acid, which enhanced the effects of the alcohol. So basically, you know, this kind of just knocked you right out. Now, he claimed, as many of these uh, inventors of these patent medicines, he, he claimed that this drug would have all kinds of uh, effects helping to uh, cure, you know, cancer, diabetes, but mainly it was taken as a, as a pain medication. Um, and he, uh, uh, LeBlanc was known for his really aggressive marketing strategies. So he included, uh, he organized this, this medicine show with all these great stars in the late 1940s. He wrote the, uh, a country hit called the Hadacol Boogie. <laughs> and um, Bill Nettles and his Dixie Blue Boys had a version of this song. Down in Louisiana in the bright sunshine to do a little boogie woogie all the time to do the Hadacol Boogie. It was later covered by, I think, um, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, and uh, shortly after that, things started to kind of fall off the tracks. Uh, by 1951, at, right at the peak of the success of the company, it came out that uh, LeBlanc owed millions of dollars in tax debt and unpaid bills, 
and the Federal Trade Commission uh, accused him of false advertising and, you know, he got lots of bad publicity and he was forced to sell the company and it basically not only ruined the company but also his political career. So he had a really high peak and then a very fast burnout and that was the end of the story. <laughs> Backtracking a little bit now, you heard Darren mention that Hatakol contained a decent amount of booze in it along with other things to knock you out. It turns out not only was this good for sales post-prohibition, but patent medicine was one of the only ways to actually get whiskey after the Volstead Act went into effect. They still prescribed it because they could make a lot of money. It cost $3 for a prescription and three or four more dollars to fill the prescription. And you could get a prescription uh, filled for one pint every every 10 days. So this was a money maker for a lot of doctors. You needed a prescription to purchase alcohol for medicinal purposes. This um, bourbon, Old Taylor, it comes from Kentucky and it was named after Colonel Edmund Hayes Taylor who was related to General Zachary Taylor and he built this huge distillery in the form of a castle. And for a long time, it, it, it was closed, but it recently opened up again as a distillery. You can look it up online. It's called Castle and Key Distillery. Uh, I'd like to uh, visit it sometime, but uh, that's, that's the story. <laughs> and a great job, as always, by Monty Montgomery. And a special thanks... To Darren Glassbrook, executive director of the Mobile Medical Museum. And it's hard to imagine a time, well, actually maybe not so hard to imagine a time when there was no FDA and people just got to sell anything to anybody for any any reason. And who knows the kind of junk that got sold. And by the way, even with the FDA, look at how far the miracles of modern medicine have taken us from what we thought were cures back in the day to now. And by the way, all of the stories we tell here about America's past are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And by the way, we'd love to hear more stories from you. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. And click on the Your Stories tab. We cannot wait to hear them. Finally, Heidi Vars lives with her six kids in Green Lake, Wisconsin. A man named Tom moved into their neighborhood from Chicago when he retired as a police officer from Cook County. Heidi and Tom were neighbors for almost 15 years before they got to know each other. Tom was in his 80s and extremely introverted. Heidi was a busy mom who didn't think she had the time to invest in a grumpy old man. Something changed in Heidi's heart and she began reaching out to this older gentleman who was quickly declining in health. Tom slowly began letting Heidi in. Here's Heidi sharing about her relationship with her elderly neighbor, Tom. It just takes time. Tom wasn't dying. Well, that is, he wasn't dying as quickly as everyone expected. The nurses and the doctors, the kids, and even the chief of police didn't think he'd be here this long. He was 83 and so stubborn, and certainly hated people doting over him. He told me so many times, 
He wanted to die at home and not here in this hospital. But I don't think we get to choose how we travel that last part of the journey. He said he wanted to die in his sleep in his house, but not here. Every time I visited him, he asked me if he could go home. One time he stopped talking altogether. I pulled up a chair next to his bed and reached across the sheet for a slim hand. And while so many people had tried to get close, he pushed everyone away. But somehow he managed to pull me in. In the past month, we've just been playing this game and this tug of war. And I tried to convince him to get help, but he wanted to have his independence. He had this strong will which kept him alive for all these years, and somehow that strong will betrayed him and even become his enemy. But see, I'm German, and I have about just as hard of a head as he did. And he hated to be told what to do and had an aversion to anyone who even tried. When I was sitting there next to his bed and I was hating the fact that he was dying so slowly and mostly alone. It was for the first time in 20 years that I'd known him that I held his hand. I looked down and saw that time and the decades that spanned between us and the wrinkles and lines and the gnarls of his fingers. He had spent so much effort trying to keep me away. But we'd grown close. Even all of his efforts and we became friends. Actually really good friends. As I sat there, I wondered how we got there. I think it all started nine years ago when his wife, Mary, died one year short of their 50th anniversary. We had been neighbors up to that point for many years, but we didn't know each other. And I think we both liked it that way. We minded our own business. He stayed in his yard, I stayed in mine. He planted roses and red geraniums, and I was in my flowers and my own vegetable garden. And then when we saw each other in the summer, we gave a friendly wave, and every so often when the dogs wandered across to each other's properties, then we took a few minutes and we always made sure we excused the dog's behavior and we were careful not to talk about meaningless chit-chat. Living next to him was really not complicated. He was tall and slender and he slicked his gray hair back and always wore, felt like the same plaid shirt, cotton shirt, tucked into his belted jeans. But he was able to demand respect. He didn't even have to say anything. Sometimes when I was in his presence, I just felt small. And it wasn't just because he was over six feet tall. Before he retired, that was over 20 years ago, he worked for the Chicago Police Force in Cook County. It felt like he was wearing an invisible badge everywhere he went. I often wondered about all the things that you must have seen during that time. And then when he finally turned in his uniform after, I think, almost 40 years, I imagined he was looking for a quiet place to retire. I wondered if he wanted to see the stars instead of that orange glow of the city. So he and Mary moved three hours north and far away from all that hustle and bustle. And he built their dream house right there in our neighborhood at the end of the color sack and 
somehow in the middle of my view. And then when she died, it seemed like he didn't want to live anymore either. He kind of closed the front door hard and didn't want anybody to come in anymore, even the kids. It seemed like he didn't need anyone. I don't think he wanted to share any of his private affairs or even his grief. He was so strong, or at least he appeared that way. And then a few years ago, I noticed in the spring, I looked over and I didn't even see his lawn chairs out. He normally put those out in the spring for the summer, and, but not that year. And then in the fall that year, there was that routine he had of going to the gas station, and he just stopped it all together. He would usually leave at 9 a.m. and get the paper and a cup of coffee. But for some reason, he just stopped going out. And the garage door seemed to open less and less, and he stayed inside more and more. I think that's why his dogs became his most trusted companions. They became his best friends. One winter morning, and it had snowed all night, and it was super cold. I called him and I offered to shovel a path for the dogs in the back. And then to my surprise, he, he agreed to that. And that year on Christmas Eve, I just went over and knocked on his back door and handed him a gift. I bought him a book about Jesus and made some cookies. And he handed me a green box of Frango Mint Chocolates from Macy's. That was something I would get every year for Christmas. I found out he had a sweet tooth. He didn't mind banana bread and zucchini bread and cookies and all of those things. And then over the next month and with each visit to drop off banana bread, I just noticed he was getting thinner. His tall frame was waning. I felt myself worrying more and more about his health, and so I baked more and more and called more often. I became really grateful for those dogs, and almost subconsciously I looked over when I saw him outside in the yard and in the winter his porch light came on at exactly 8.30 to get him outside one more time before he went to bed. I really didn't want to but I found myself watching for that light. It was like it was a beacon, a beam that shone across that half acre. It felt like it was a signal that things were okay. And over the span of that winter I felt myself wearing a path down in the snow between our houses. It felt like it was the beginning of a tightrope walk, a balancing thing, an act of me trying to care for him and he trying to keep his independence, of me trying to show that neighborly love and him just didn't want anybody to care. I really can't recall an exact moment when things turned for the worse. It was more like something really gradual moved towards something scary and inevitable. Something we both didn't want to acknowledge. But somehow we knew about it. But part of me didn't mind caring. He had such a hard challenge. It was almost like a, a challenge to crack that. And I smiled one day when the phone rang and I saw his number pop up. And he went, Hello, this is Tom. I'm wondering if you can pick me up next time you go to the store. His question had an exclamation mark. Well, I agreed, of course. I liked him and I really meant it. And then he asked me um, when I would go the next time. And I just said, how about nine in the morning? 
And he just said, how about 9.30? Of course, he had to have the last word. I picked him up at 9.30 sharp the next day, and then we went to the store for some groceries. There's dog food, a six-pack of pistachio muffins, a six-pack of bottled Coke, Jamaican breakfast sandwiches, and a bag of individually wrapped Turkey's chocolates. That was on his list. And then he made sure I knew exactly where those items were. Because you never know if I had to go maybe next time by myself. And I did. I did go by myself. The following week, and the week after that, and the weeks and months after that too. And this list got longer, slowly, but they always had the same things from the first shopping trip. Oh, and then the phone rang more often on my end. Uh, if I could stop over and help him move a table, or if I can give him a ride to the bank. How about the eye doctor? Then his eyes were getting worse, and how about take him for eye surgery? And with that, the car rides became longer, and we had more intentional conversations. We talked about the kids, and cubs, and the brewers, and talked about the news in town and in the world. And he allowed me little glimpses into his life. He tried hard to make sure he remained the interrogator. He made sure that he was the one who asked the questions, and I was the one who answered. But there were times he slipped when he let his guard down, when his mind trailed off, and then he told me about his wife and how she brought home the dogs from the shelter and how he just loved them because of that. Then there was that time he told me about his daughter, Liz, that she was my age and the only girl among all those boys, and how she took on the role of checking in on him all the time. For some reason, she was able to get close to him, press in, and not to let him turn her away. But then she died of cancer shortly after Mary left. I could see that he missed them terribly. And then I felt my compassion growing for him. Well, maybe it was because in my own heart, I really wanted a chance as a daughter and mending a relationship with my own dad. And then it felt like our time was more and more like a gift, like a second chance, maybe even for both of us. And then the spring turned into summer and fall into winter, and then that one night, well, I had feared, and I think he too, well, that thing came true. It was past 8.30, and that porch light knocked on my kitchen window. I scurried around and wiped the counters and looked over, and it snowed all day, and it was so cold. So I kept pacing and looking over to his house. I reasoned. Ah, oh, he just forgot to turn the light off. I'm sure. I waited a few more minutes and did a couple more things and looked back over and it was still on. And Then I just picked up the phone and dialed his number. There was no answer. My stomach turned into knots and I sensed that there was something seriously wrong. I put my boots on and stumbled over there as fast as I could and knocked on his back door and saw something that really scared me. He'd given me a key, actually, and so I made it into the house and I found him on the floor unable to move. There was a man that I didn't know for all those years. He was on the ground and he had no confidence left. He was so scared. His eyes flickered and his mind was confused. I tried to look around to make sense to see what happened and 
found his phone was busted on the kitchen floor and blood poured from his elbow. His arms and legs were shaking. He must have crawled to the living room to steady himself against the couch. I looked over and he gave me that stern look and commanded, just help me up. I was so frustrated. I looked at him and I said, Tom, you're hurt. You need to get to the hospital. I'll call you an ambulance. Oh, he looked at me and tried again to get me to help him up. He says, no, I won't go. And I just looked at him sternly and said, no, sir. And I picked up my phone and dialed 911. When they came, he did refuse to go along. And that was the first time I was angry at him. And I was angry at having let myself get close. And it was the first of many times I was angry. And then eventually the day came and he fell for the very last time. At that point, he was unable to refuse to help and to say no. And that was the time the house turned dark and the porch line turned off. I was sitting there in the hospital and the seconds seemed to crawl across the face of the clock and they felt so slow. They were so much slower than the seconds at home. At home, the hours were filled with chores and flew by in no time. Here, the seconds were limited and finite and drawn out and begging to be filled with one more opportunity for saying something. I wanted him to hear something. It was so hard to say what I wanted to say. And I didn't know if he could hear me, but I whispered, I wish you were my dad, Tom. There's nothing I can do for you as a neighbor. And then I felt him squeeze my hand. I miss him every time I look over to his house or past the pistachio muffins in the store. He really has helped me understand something. That the distance between two people is really not measured by the distance, or proximity, or age. It feels like a half an acre can be so far, like the distance between two worlds, or it can be so short and such a short path between two good friends. I think the distance between two people is as great as their unwillingness to share their pain. But love is patient, even with the most difficult people. And most of all, that kind of love that is willing to share in pain and suffering and turns neighbors into friends and even sometimes strangers into daughters is really not unlike dying. It just takes time. And a special thanks to Heidi Vars and what a spectacular story and so much wisdom and so much heart. And thanks as always to Faith for the great work on the production, and thanks to Leslie Leyland Fields, herself a terrific writer who teaches and does seminars. And this story, well, it comes from one of those seminars. It springs from one of those seminars. And again, Heidi Voris, so much wisdom and so much compassion. I mean, when she finally did realize that this man had lost the love of his life, Mary, and then lost his daughter to cancer, and he was alone, and he was tough on the outside, but not on the inside. He was a softie. And she was stubborn and he was stubborn. And as she said, she wanted a second chance to mend the relationship she never really had with her own father. Those final words whispered into his ear. 
Just beautiful. Like a movie we just heard. Except it's better because it was real. By the way, if you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and listen to them. We've covered the story of General George Washington, a bodybuilding semi-pro video gamer, and even the story of Uncle Nathan Nearest Green, the former slave who taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey, plus so many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Story Podcast. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth no matter who you are. Mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. Dot com. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.